We are living in a time, and I have spoken about this before, but I speak about it multiple times because I believe it is important, especially as things start to overlap with the church here. We're living in a time where people are concerned about the collapse of the structure of society. And in order to remedy that situation, what some people have elected to do is let's go back to the religious foundation that we had because we don't want to see society fall. So what was holding us up in the first place? And some people have come to, I would believe, the partially correct conclusion that it was faith in Jesus Christ. It was the gospel. It was the church. And so they are seeking actively to rebuild religion, namely the Christian religion in this country. However, you can get very excited about that up until you start hearing some of these people describe what this looks like. And what they are rebuilding is not what we would call an evangelical return to the gospel and the identity of Jesus himself, but it's actually a return to the soft soap liberal Christianity that made this mess in the first place. And I don't mean in that sense liberal politically, I mean that liberal theologically, meaning the Bible does not really hold authority over what you believe as much as a framework upon which you can build your own belief and your own way through life. And the way you know this is true is because many of those that are pushing this the hardest do not themselves adhere to any of the tenets of Christianity, but they do think it would be a good idea for the plebs to hold on to so that we don't lose this great country we have. And the thing is, this is not a new thing in our country. I, I grew up not far, 15 minutes from Poplar Forest, which was Thomas Jefferson's summer home. I went to so many field trips to Poplar Forest, and Monticello was only about an hour away in Charlottesville. And as much as you can admire him in many ways, Thomas Jefferson did not have much time for the Jesus of the Bible. He very famously wrote what is called the Jefferson Bible, in which he excised all of the miracle stories, all of the theology, anything that was philosophically objectionable to produce a Bible, which was the words of Jesus, only the virtues, only the moral pronouncements as he saw them. And he was vilified for it then. And he got rather annoyed with the Christians that were upset with him for this. Because in his mind, I'm trying to do what you're trying to do. I just don't think you need to believe all of the mumbo jumbo, maybe that wasn't the term he used, in order to build this. However, he was wrong then. And the dilettantes that are doing it today are also wrong. Because it is not just the secondary benefits of Christianity that have power. It is the foundation itself. You can rebuild the structure, but if I might borrow an illustration from a great man, if you build on a house or a foundation of sand, when the storms come, it's going to fall apart. But if you build on the rock, which is Jesus and his teachings, then it will stand firm. And you see that conflict. What I'm trying to tell you is that this is one place where Christians can give exactly zero inches of territory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, says that Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. Meaning the Jews were offended by it and the Gentiles thought it was ridiculous. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. In another place in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ. I'm not here to preach me or my ideas or us and our priorities. 
Because we are not here to merely speak of good news. We have the good news with a capital G and a capital N. As Mark said in the first verse, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, about whom this was written. Our responsibility, especially in this day and age, when you have a very vicious and antagonistic foe against the church, it makes us tempted to form alliances with those that don't oppose our gospel but want to water it down because they are both opponents of the cross and of Jesus. And we will be called stubborn and we will be called narrow. But Jesus Christ himself said the way is narrow that leads to life and there are very few that find it. Our responsibility is to know who Jesus is, his person, his works, his words, to preserve them and teach them. And the authority for what is true about Christ is only found in the word of Christ, which is why we open our Bibles to the gospel of Mark and begin reading at chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We've been looking so far in the gospel of Mark, not far, but so far, at the ministry of John the Baptist, who was the voice crying out in the wilderness, the forerunner of the Messiah, calling the nation to wake up to wake up the conscience of Israel so that they would be prepared for the one who would come after him. And without any further fanfare, in verse 9, Mark announces the arrival of Jesus, the one whom he had called the Son of God in the first verse of this chapter. Jesus came from Nazareth. And it's amazing how simple this announcement is. You read the Gospel of John, and there's a long as we said, metaphysical prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Matthew is going to give the genealogy of Christ, going all the way to Abraham and David and Adam. Then you have the Gospel of Luke. We've got an amazing story of the birth of Christ and the angels appearing and the songs that were written even at his birth. But Mark, probably writing at the dictation or the memory of Peter, just says, one day Jesus came. We believe that Peter would have been a disciple of John, at least his brother Andrew was. And as they're telling the story, there's this mighty revival going, and then just one day, Jesus came. One day, one man among many showed up to be baptized. And this mundane identification teaches us the first fact. We're going to look at seven facts about Jesus tonight. I want to use the term fact because we are holding on to facts, not just ideas and theories. The first blindingly simple fact about Jesus is that Jesus was a man. You might hear that and go, well, does anybody question that? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. There are those who would say, Jesus might have been a man. It doesn't matter. 
All that matters is what he taught us. There are those that very plainly, and I mean, no, Jesus was not a man. He was just made up, and even that doesn't matter. There are those that believe Jesus was some sort of mystical energy uh, offshoot of the divine energy of God, maybe an avatar like the Dalai Lama of some great man or other, but just to call him a man almost feels blasphemous. And yet that is exactly what the Word teaches. John 1.14, which refers to Jesus as the mighty Logos, the Word of God, The whole point of talking about the Word in the first place was when he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. Hebrews 2.14 says that, Since therefore the children, you and I, share in flesh and blood... He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. What things? Flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. John 1.14 tells us that the Word was made flesh. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that the Son of God partook in flesh and blood. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that the Son of God emptied Himself and took on the form of a servant. 1 John 1, the Apostle explains how we saw Him, we touched Him, we heard Him, we handled Him. The man, Christ Jesus. This might seem like such a basic fact for you and I, but we must remember this. Jesus was as human as you are. He's as human as I am. And even that causes your, your stomach to do a flip-flop if you're, if you're not careful. Well, I mean, he was a man, but he wasn't a man like me. No, friend, he had to be a man just like you. Otherwise, the gospel makes no sense. He's 100% man. Which means he lived a very Ordinary, normal life. He walked in flesh. He was hungry. He was tired. He would be irritated. He was tempted to sin. He did not sin, but he faced all the same temptations you do. He lived his life without accessing any of the divine privileges. Now, he will make clear later to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane that he had full access to his divine privileges at any time. I could call legions of angels to come right now and fight for me, but he willingly chose not to exercise them. I think the easiest way to approach this is to come to the most obvious one. Was Jesus omnipresent during his life? No, he was not. Did he have the ability and the capacity to be omnipresent? Yes, but he did not. He localized, humbled himself to be in one place in the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. That's who he was. Now, you must also understand Jesus was not exercising his omnipotence on earth either. Jesus was not playing hide-and-go-seek by sinking down into the ground where nobody could see him and then climbing out of the top of a tree because he could do that. Nor was he healing broken birds' wings or or taking care of the the children in the neighborhood or turning water into wine at the parties in high school. He wasn't doing things like that. Nor was Jesus accessing his omniscience at this time. How do I know that? Because Jesus would very plainly say at certain times, he did not know things. Now, is that blasphemous to say? No, what it tells us is that Jesus, when he took on flesh, acted entirely and 100% during the time of his existence on this earth as a human man. In fact, 1 John 4, 3, John the Apostle tells us to deny that Christ came in the flesh is the doctrine of the Antichrist. You might think, well, I don't want to be Antichrist. Then you must acknowledge that Jesus Christ was a man. If he wasn't, 
it erases the gospel. Because then, how is he an appropriate sacrifice for you or for me? He had to be a man. This means he's able to sympathize with us, to save us. We cannot lose sight of Jesus Christ, not just as our Lord, but as our friend and as our brother. On that day on the Jordan River, where the crowds were gathered to hear John preach, there was one man standing in line from the city of Nazareth that nobody paid any extra attention to as he walked forward and waited his turn to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, you might wonder, why would Jesus be baptized if he was sinless? Now, Mark gives us the least amount of detail on the baptism of Jesus. It just says he came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, period. Well, we know in other Gospels that John himself actually recoiled from this. He goes, if anybody's getting baptized in this situation, you need to baptize me. But God answers the question for us. We say, isn't it, isn't it kind of wrong for somebody who was sinless to be baptized? Well, when he was baptized, what happened? He came up out of that water, and God publicly thundered his approval of this man who had just been baptized. It says that the, the heavens were torn open. That's a very violent word that he uses. Schizono. It's where we get words like schizophrenic, something being torn in pieces. It's the same word that will be used later when it says the veil of the temple was torn in two. Also, by the way, immediately followed by a confession of Jesus as the Son of God by the centurion. Mark knew what he was doing when he wrote this book. But the heavens were torn open. The Spirit came on him like a dove, and a voice thundered from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Remember, what was baptism? Baptism was repentance. It was acknowledging my life is not what it should be, and I want to start fresh. Well, when Jesus gets baptized, he comes up and God goes, You're good. You're all right. <laughs> you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We spent some time in the Gospel of Luke talking about what the consciousness of Jesus of his identity might have been like at this point, but I'm not going to spend much time on it just to say it is remarkable that the Lord announced this to him. Here's our second fact. Jesus was the Son of God, which is to say he was God. To be the Son of God is to be God. And the reason I can say that is because in John 19, 7, when they're getting ready to crucify Jesus, they said he must be crucified. Why? Because he blasphemed by calling himself the Son of God. <laughs> you know, sometimes folks try to take that term Son of God and make it this transcendental thing. Hey, man, we're all, you know, sons of God, right? Aren't we all sons and daughters of God? Aren't we all children of heaven, man? Well, in one sense, yes. But in another very much more profound sense, not even close. <laughs> to be the Son of God meant to carry all the characteristics, the very nature and the very quality of God. That was how it was understood at that time, which is why when Jesus called God his Father, it really offended the religious people. Well, we all call God Father. You realize we didn't do that until Jesus taught us to do that. They thought that was inappropriate. Romans 8 tells us it is only the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you that can produce that call upon the Lord God as Abba, Father. So for Jesus to be the Son of God means for him to have the entire nature of God without dilution or diminution. Colossians 1.19 puts it very plainly. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. How much is that? Say all of it. <laughs> 
well, Jesus, yeah, he was son of God, but was, was he really all the way God? Well, Colossians 1 says in him, all the fullness of God. Hebrews 1, verses 3 through 4, puts it very poetically. I love this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You can't say, well, Jesus is just the highest of all spirit beings. No, the book of Hebrews doesn't allow us to come to that conclusion. He is the fullness of God, very God. That's the Trinitarian mystery, that Jesus could both be God and be with God, as John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is that unique, eternally begotten Son of the Father. We talked about that earlier this year, I guess it was last year now, about the eternal generation of the Son. That Jesus Christ has been begotten by the Father, but it is an eternal generation. It defines and describes their relationship. Yet there was no time when Christ was not. There was no time when Christ was lesser than. He has always been the Son of the Eternal Father. <laughs> I don't have notes to talk about this more, but maybe we will someday. Do you realize that a lot of the Norse myths that we hear now were adjusted in order to be more like Jesus and his Father? Because many of the Norse pagans, when we went up and the Christians began to spread the gospel, they were very threatened by this. And so they began to tweak their identity and their stories about who their gods were, which is where Odin got the name of Allfather, for example. Well, yeah, he's just the son of God, but he's the father of everybody. And, you know, Jesus hung on the cross for three days. Well, well, Odin hung on the world tree for nine days, trying to one-up Jesus. But you didn't even know about that, and the gospel's gone over the whole world, hasn't it? The creed says that Jesus Christ is God, very God. I love that terminology. That's such a great way to put it. The man Jesus was also the God Jesus, fully divine, fully human, and what we call that hypostatic union, that 100% and 100%. Does that make Jesus 50-50? No, it means he's 200%. 200%. He was the son of God, and it was announced at his baptism. Speaking of the Trinity, by the way, the Holy Spirit is present here too. There's actually a great play on words here in the Greek that uh, you can see, but you might miss it because the words are a little different. It says, when he came up out of the water, the Spirit was descending on him. Those words in the Greek are very close to each other, and they're, it's supposed to be, as Jesus was coming up, the Holy Spirit was coming down. You have Jesus, anabinon, and the Holy Spirit, katabinon. It all ties together. That This was one continuous action. There was something miraculous and wonderful happening here. The Holy Spirit was descending upon Jesus. Which brings us to our third fact of the night. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ was Spirit-filled. So if you don't care for the designation Spirit-filled for yourself as a believer, you might want to take a step back and reconsider that. Because Jesus Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, up until this point, had lived an entirely ordinary life. And if you doubt me, just wait until we get to the part where Jesus goes back home. And they hear him preaching. And they start saying things like, who does this kid think he is? This is the carpenter. And people calling you rabbi like you're somebody. 
Jesus had lived an entirely ordinary life. He didn't do any miracles. He wasn't having these cosmic visions of the world. Well, what changed? How did Jesus do all these things? Remember earlier we were talking about the divine privileges and how Jesus did not access them. Even though he had access to them, he did not access them. Well, some people say, well, Jesus had to be omnipotent and omniscient and use those powers while he was on earth. Otherwise, how did he do miracles? It's a very simple answer, friends. By the power of the Holy Spirit. The same way you and I operate in our spiritual gifts, Jesus Christ was operating in his while he was on the earth. And if that makes you uncomfortable, you should know that Jesus Christ said we will do the same works that he did and greater works because he would go to the Father and send the Spirit to us just like the Spirit came to him. This fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. We'll be in Isaiah a lot tonight. There's so many great references in Isaiah, but it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. You ever chop down a tree or, or chop down a, like a weed or something, and then you know, winter goes and it's nice and dead, but then the first warm spell comes and there's just one little green branch sticking out of this dead thing that you chopped down. And that happened to me at my, uh, my first house. There was this bush that I just hated and it was right on the corner and I was afraid it was going to start to affect the foundation. So I cut all the way down the chainsaw and then I go to start digging out this root and the root just kept going and going and going until finally I'm digging on this and I'm pulling on it, trying to snap it and the shovel snapped off in my hand. So I had the head of a shovel and the stick of a shovel. And I decided, you know what? This is good enough. <laughs> and I went back inside. But the next spring, sure enough, there were more shoots coming out of the stump. This is what was prophesied would happen to the line of David. That writing, Isaiah was prophesying at the time where the line of David would be cut off at the exile. When Zedekiah would watch his sons be killed right in front of him and then have his eyes taken out. He said, someday there's going to be one shoot coming out of the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And, here it is now, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And that is who Jesus was. The son of David, the shoot who had come from the stump, who will bear, will bear good fruit, filled with the power of God's Holy Spirit. Jesus was not wielding magic like a superhero. He was led and empowered by the Holy Spirit, who is the personal presence and power of the living God, guiding him every step of the way. And it was in this same Holy Spirit that John prophesied Jesus would baptize you and me. Acts 1.5, one of the last things Jesus said before he went up to heaven at his ascension was, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The life of Christ is intended to be a foretaste of our lives as Christians. And while tonight is all about cultivating what's called a strong or a high Christology, meaning your doctrine of Christ is, is as high as it can be, you also need to cultivate a high pneumatology, meaning the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, or you'll miss out on the very life that Jesus intends for you to live. Well, what did the Holy Spirit do with Jesus? Would you believe that the first thing it says in verse 12 is that the Holy Spirit cast him out. The Greek word is ekbalo. Balo is where we get words like ball, when you throw the ball. And ek is like exit. It means out. Ekbalo is the same word that will be used later when it says that Jesus would cast a demon out of somebody. So when it says, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out. Drove him out is ekbalo. Cast him out. 
It's a violent image. It's a forceful image. Into the wilderness to be tested. To be tested or tempted by Satan. And that Satan came and was tempting him. The wild beasts were out there. That's a note that only Mark includes in this story, by the way. Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke expand upon this story. They tell us the temptations that came. And I love preaching that passage. It's one of my favorites. But Mark skips over all that. But he does offer this note that Jesus was with the beasts. And this was a, a common image of the time that the wilderness was the place where the evil spirits dwelt. And the, the wild beasts were their messengers. And this would come into the writings of the desert fathers, the, the monks that came later. So the point is Jesus is out on his own, but the angels were ministering to him. You've got this amazing angelic battle going on here over this man Jesus. Satan has come to test him. The angels have come to minister to him. And he's come to be tested and prepared, his final preparation for his ministry. It's true, isn't it, that you can tell the quality of a man by his enemies. A lot of times, if you don't know if you should be on somebody's team or not, you look at the people that don't like them. And you go, you know what, if they, if they hate you, you must be doing something right. Well, Jesus, our fourth fact tonight, was hated by hell, which tells us everything we need to know about whose side we should be on. Satan, that Greek word is actually a transliteration of the Hebrew word Satan, and it means adversary or enemy. Adversary, it can even mean technically as in prosecuting attorney, accuser, or the devil he's called. Satan has been harassing humanity since day one. Revelation tells us in no uncertain terms that he was that serpent of old. He was the one tempting Eve in the garden. But now he's still at his old tricks, but he has one special target, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. That's his target. It is important for us to remember that spiritual warfare is real. Angels and demons exist, and they are active in your life and mine. Paul told us in Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Of who? The devil. Now, if we wanted to be cute and clever and very 21st century about it, we said, now, yeah, the devil, but I mean, the devil is just a symbol of, you know, we even say my demons, meaning the, the things that I struggle with, my problems, my difficulties, or the things that I struggle with. That's not what he means. He very deliberately in verse 12 goes on to say, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. Now, some people say, no, see, they're the government. No, no, not flesh and blood. Spiritual rulers and authorities. Against, he says, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. We have an enemy. And Christ has an enemy. And while Satan hates you, he hates you because he hates Jesus and he hates God. And he wants to see you ruined. Now, you can, you can go two ways here. You can ignore this entirely and pretend it doesn't matter. Or you can develop a morbid fascination with demons. And there are some that do this. And if I've ever encountered you, see like you might be going down that way, maybe I kind of grabbed you by the shoulder and pulled you back a little bit. Because we can become so obsessed with the supernatural that we start to fear and admire the devil more than we do God. 
Because you would think somebody who gets very into, for example, some kinds of deliverance ministry or who gets obsessed with this devil and this God and this pagan thing, you would think that they would walk away with the biggest, boldest faith you've ever heard that Jesus can handle any of these things. But that's not usually the case. Usually those folks walk away shaken in their boots that if we're not careful, the devil's going to get us. So that kind of inquiry bears bad fruit in my experience. It doesn't make us brave. Makes us fearful. When we shouldn't be fearful. Because it's to Christ that we should look. First John 4 4, you know this. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The devil cowers before Christ. I don't understand why those that spend the most time studying such things would walk away with greater fear instead of greater faith. This opening salvo in the story here reminds us that Jesus is the herald of righteousness. He is the light in the darkness. He is the ultimate of good. There is no mixture in Christ. There is no fault. There's no flaw. There's no almost. There's no serious danger of sin. Jesus Christ could stare the devil in the face and walk away the victor. But may I say, so may you if you are in Christ. He is our hope in the dark. He reminds us that he was hated by hell, which tells us that his mission was greater even than just the salvation of us. There was a salvation of all universe that had to take place. But after that, after the angels ministered to him and Satan tested him in the wilderness, 40 days, very significant number, Israel was in the wilderness 40 days, Elijah was in the wilderness, Moses was in the wilderness. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Uh, we're going to read more about the arrest of King Herod, arresting John in Mark chapter 6. We're going to get the full story. Uh, and there are also other Gospels that seem to indicate there was more of an overlap between the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus. Mark doesn't really worry about that. He just kind of says things didn't really take off until after John was arrested. Because remember, John had said, one is coming after me. He was the forerunner and Jesus was to come after him came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So that tells us, in verse 14 right there, that what John prophesied, that someone is coming after me who is mightier than I, and I'm not even worthy to bend down and unloose his sandals, Jesus was that man. This is our next fact. The fifth fact is that Jesus was prophesied beforehand, which means he is God's Mashiach, is the Hebrew, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed and promised one. He was the guy that we were waiting for, the prophesied king of Israel, the one that was going to destroy their enemies and establish their borders, the one who was going to reign in righteousness and justice on the earth, who was going to pour out his Holy Spirit on all mankind and atone for all of our sins. If this was the one John was talking about, then this means Jesus was he. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 prophesied that this would happen. They even prophesied where Jesus would come from. It says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, the Lord has brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. You don't even remember that Naphtali is one of the 12 tribes most of the time. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
Isaiah prophesied that one day, into the darkest of times, a light will shine and he will come from Galilee. And that's not only where Jesus grew up, that's where his ministry will spend most of its time. Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. And after John was arrested, John preaching that message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As soon as he's arrested, Jesus takes up the mantle in Galilee and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This reminds us that Jesus was not just identified later. Jesus did not just have a loyal band of followers that made up all sorts of wonderful stories about him after he was crucified. But that Jesus was foretold from the very beginning, all the way back to the book of Genesis, when the Lord said, I will send one to crush the head of that serpent. That was their first confrontation in the desert. But now here he comes beginning that ministry. He was the one who would be the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of Jacob and Israel. He was prophesied and foretold. We got into some of the details of those prophecies last week, so we're not going to get into it again. But if you read the Old Testament, you must understand, friends, it all points to Jesus anticipating his arrival, preparing the hearts of Israel to receive him as John did. That was the last, keep this in mind, the last Old Testament prophet was the one telling everybody to get ready for Jesus as all the prophets had done. That's why the Old Testament opened up in such a remarkable way after Jesus rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit was given because these men, these men that knew Christ, go back and read the Old Testament and they begin to realize He's everywhere. How did we miss this? In fact, in, later on in this book, Israel will be rebuked for missing this. Missing what? Well, missing the thing that Jesus told them was coming. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He came back. The, there is a verb form of this word called euangelomai. So it's where we get words like evangelize, euangelizomai. It means to preach good news. But here Mark spreads it out. He says that Jesus will keruso the euangelion. He will proclaim the gospel, which could be one of the early indicators that the church had not quite coined this term yet, although I'm not certain about that. But here we get a taste of Jesus' regular message. You know, we read the Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse or the Sermon on the Plain or any of those things, and you ever sit back and wonder, man, these profound things, what was it like day by day? When Jesus showed up somewhere new, what was it like? What was his, his go-to opening line? We know what it is. Jesus' first message everywhere he went was, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, our sixth fact, was a herald of good news. He was a preacher of the gospel. What was he telling them? Every prophecy has been fulfilled. The time has come. That word, it's been filled up. Everything that needed to be filled up has been filled up. When you're waiting for the thermometer to get to the top, it is filled up. The wait was over. And the kingdom of God has drawn near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Literally there, it has come near. You know, Mark uses this word immediately a lot. We've already seen it twice here. He's going to use it, depending on the textual variance, between 40 and 45 times in his gospel. And here he uses the verb form. The kingdom of God is drawing near, is immediate, is right around the corner, you could say. It's at hand. You can almost reach out. And touch it. The kingdom of God is here. Now we should take a minute and clarify what we mean by this. 
when Jesus was preaching the gospel, he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What is this kingdom? We hear about it a lot, and I've known a lot of preachers, even those that I very much respect, who use that term kingdom rather flippantly, rather loosely. And that's fine, as long as you understand the, the actual definition of what this means, because kingdom in the New Testament with a capital K is a rather complex idea. And I've got four aspects of this, and these are not, not you know, standard here. These are just my way of explaining this to you. And, and the, the terminology in the New Testament is never quite as neat as we like, but I'm going to use these, these four terms to help us understand the range of what is meant when Jesus said the kingdom is at hand. First of all, it meant the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom that would belong to Israel. The Lord himself, Jehovah, is the God of Israel. So for his kingdom to come would mean for their kingdom to come. With the full blessings of everything God had promised them in the book of Deuteronomy and elsewhere. The full boundaries that God had promised them. That they had just barely tasted during the time of Solomon, but almost immediately were ripped away from them. The Lord says, the day comes where I will fulfill all of those promises. The land will be yours. Every square inch that I've promised you will be yours. And I will bless you as I always promised to bless you. That's what Jesus was talking about when he says the kingdom is at hand. Number two, this is the kingdom of David. The kingdom of David. This is not just the, the nation itself. There is a very specific person who will sit on that throne, and that is the descendant of David. God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he said, your line will never cease from being on the throne before me. Now, what he's not saying is there will never be an exile or there will never be a time where the line will be interrupted because of my judgment. He's saying there's never going to be an end to your kingdom. So these interruptions that are happening in time won't matter once Christ has taken his place on the throne. They, they knew that this son of David would come and restore everything that it always was supposed to be. They were looking for him to drive out their enemies, to drive Rome away, to keep Syria away, Syria away, to keep Egypt at bay. They were praying and hoping for this. And Jesus said, that day is almost here because I am the son of David who will sit on the throne of Jerusalem. So we have the kingdom of Israel with its full blessing and boundaries, the kingdom of David, the Messiah seated on the throne, God's man, God's holy one. Number three, this is the kingdom of heaven. This is that very mysterious spiritual aspect of the kingdom. Now, depending on the theology that we're discussing, sometimes I'm rather frustrated by those that only want to insist upon the spiritual nature of the kingdom. Because I think it is abundantly clear throughout the Old Testament and the New that Jesus Christ will come in the flesh to actualize a kingdom on this earth, as I just mentioned. That said, we should not neglect the fact that the kingdom of God is anywhere the people of God submit to the reign of God. That when we come together in Jesus' name, that's the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus would tell Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That's why he would tell the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is among you. And when you gather together in my name, when you preach the gospel, when the, as I said a few minutes ago, when the gospel of Jesus overtakes the paganism of the far north, that's the kingdom of God. Spiritually, mysteriously, within you, you are a subject of the kingdom of God. That's what most people mean when they say we're about kingdom work, when we're building the kingdom, spreading the kingdom. They mean we're taking the knowledge and the worship of God around the world. As long as you mean by that, 
evangelism and discipleship, I'm with you. The minute you start saying something to the effect of it is our job to build and bring in the kingdom ourselves, that's a dangerous path to tread. However, the fourth aspect of this kingdom is what I'll call here the kingdom of God, which is the eschatological, meaning the end of the world kingdom that is coming someday. That one day, Jesus Christ will return, establish his throne on the world, time will meet its end, evil will be destroyed, and we will continue forever and ever and ever into eternity. That is coming. That's what we're waiting for right now. And Jesus was announcing that that was at hand to the people of Israel. Isaiah tells us what that kingdom is going to be like in the last days. He says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. A little child shall lead them. <laughs> Son, can you let the lion out? <laughs> he looks thirsty. <laughs> the cow and the bear shall graze. The young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And the book of Revelation tells us this will last for a thousand years before the eternal state begins. So when Jesus says the kingdom with a capital K, it includes all of those aspects. Number one, what I called the kingdom of Israel, the promises that have been made to the people. Number two, the kingdom of David, that the true king would return. Number three, the kingdom of heaven, that spiritual, supernatural, mysterious aspect of the kingdom in our hearts. And number four, that ultimate final kingdom of God when it is actualized on the earth. That was the message. The message of Jesus, friends, has always been good news. As Christians, we are heralds of good news too. Jesus came to teach us peace and joy, and love, and forgiveness, and one day an eternal home with Him forever, apart from sin and apart from suffering. Can we remember in days such as these when we have to speak so strongly against sin and corruption that we are not prophets of doom, we are prophets of love? That we are here to bring good news to the nations. And while sometimes we have to give harsh, strong messages, we're about to talk about that, all of that is only a precursor to where we can finally bring somebody to the true joy and rapture of knowing Christ. Your sins can be forgiven. They've been freely paid for. Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom was coming and that Israel had the chance to receive it. We will discuss this more later, but I am firmly convinced that Israel had a legitimate chance to usher in the eschatological kingdom of God right at that moment. If it was not a legitimate chance, then the Lord is being capricious when he told them it has been taken away from you. Of course, however, they did not receive it. So it all becomes academic. The kingdom did not come in that way. Israel is not living in their boundaries as the Lord has promised right now. We're seeing a dispute over that at this very moment. We're not seeing the Messiah reigning from Jerusalem. There are some people that won't even call it Jerusalem. There's a, a monument on top of the Temple Mount that says God has no son. 
Now, we are seeing that mysterious kingdom of God in our midst. But even Romans 8 tells us this is only, the, as the song says, the foretaste of glory divine. And, and all creation is groaning and waiting for the day when it will all be consummated. Now, one day, Jesus will return. And Mark is going to explain in great detail as we get to the end of this book why we're waiting for his return. The short version is they crucified Jesus. And the, the answer to why it didn't come is because they did not do what Jesus said. He told them what was happening. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom is coming. Repent and believe in the gospel. Just like John and every other prophet before him, our seventh fact that we need to know about Jesus is that he was a preacher of repentance. Repentance. The two imperatives he gives here, which are command words, imperatives, Jesus gave us to repent and to believe. Turn from your wicked ways... And believe in what the Son of God has come to do. Jesus would make this very plain in John chapter 6, verses 27 through 29, when he had just multiplied the loaves and fishes and he had gathered a, a great big following, but all they wanted was more bread. Hey, Jesus is giving out free food. I have found that if you want to have an outreach and you want people to come, give away free food. But you might be very disappointed on the lasting fruit that comes from something like that. Oh, if you got more food, I'll show up. Jesus had that problem too. So he told them. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So they said to him, okay, what must we do to be doing the works of God? This is such a key question because Jesus answered them. What must we do to be serving God and doing what he's called us to do? Drum roll. Jesus said in John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What is the one thing God will require of you on that final day? Did you believe in my son? As John the Baptist had taught the people, the first thing to do is turn away from your wicked works to repent. I cannot comprehend those who believe that following Jesus means you no longer have to worry about sinning. Oh, I'm a Christian. I can do whatever I want now. Do you not realize the Bible explicitly told us that that was a spurious interpretation? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Paul says if people, <laughs> there's actually several places in the Bible where Paul says, lots of people say that I teach you can do whatever you want. Those people are messed up and they have no idea what they're talking about. Even Peter later on will come to Paul's defense and he says, man, I know Paul writes some crazy things, those doctrines of grace. He says, but lots of people twist those things to their own destruction. The gospel of grace is so amazing and dangerous that you are forgiven freely, that there are people that are sensual and carnal and are only interested in satisfying their own lusts who will take that as permission to go out and do whatever they want. When the first word out of Jesus' mouth when he came to preach was, repent! Stop living that way! Stop thinking like that! You know, maybe this person is listening tonight but someone commented on one of the shorts we posted on YouTube where I was talking about repentance last week, and they commented, well, this isn't very uplifting. No, it's not. Because if you want to be uplifted, the first place you must go to be lifted up is to lower yourself. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and then he will lift you up. You're broken, madam. You are broken, sir. And until you repent of that, you will be on the opposite end of God's wrath. For the wages of sin is death. That's what baptism represents. 
to die to the old self and to be raised to walk in newness of life. If somebody says, I want to follow Jesus, but I refuse to change, then keep on walking. Find somebody that will let you. There's any number of gurus and teachers and religions that will allow you to live however you want. This is not one of them. Jesus opened every message he preached with a call to repentance. And then you must believe. And faith, my friends, that faith is what turns the morning of repentance into the dancing of salvation in Christ. Because yes, you must turn from your wicked ways, but why would you want to hold on to your wicked ways in the first place? Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for your sins, to offer forgiveness freely. Jesus saying to believe right here is anticipating the work that he would do later on the cross, which is why he came in the first place. I mentioned at the beginning, those that are rather irritating with the church for insisting on the doctrines of Christ, for which we fought and labored for thousands of years to hold on to, you know that these people are not true believers because they have no time for the cross. No time for the empty tomb. They see it as entirely irrelevant to the message of Christ that he died and rose again. When in fact, my friends, that is the entire message of Christ. But once you come to that place and you realize that Jesus has died for you, life is no longer about trying to pull yourself up and get better and try to improve. It's about realizing Jesus has accepted me anyway. That I'm free, that I'm liberated, that I'm brought near to God, seated at his banqueting table, and the banner over me is love. No longer judgment and condemnation. Jesus offers you good news. It is belief in his name that appropriates that at sacrifice, which is what? It's real loyalty, obedience to Christ. We call him Lord. It's not just his first name, friends. It's his title. It means master. What, what sentence is it to say, no, Lord? No, master. You don't take that from your children. Why do you think God will take that from you? <laughs> Real loyalty. Renunciation of self. We're so obsessed with our identity. And are we happier for it? The people that spend more time thinking about themselves, talking about themselves, writing about themselves, and looking at pictures of themselves are the most unhappy people the world has ever known. How would you like to renounce all of that? How would you like to renounce all of it and be found anew in Christ Jesus? Real cleansing. Not having to shout loudly to cover up your guilt so that you don't feel bad for the things you've done. To have all those things be fully consonant and fully aware and fully spoken out loud, but to know they have no power over you anymore. It's not erasing the past. It's realizing that you've been forgiven. You must really believe that. It begins by believing the story. Jesus Christ was the Son of God who died on the cross, who rose from the dead. But it's not just faith, it's faithfulness. It's a life of faith and obedience after that. Is this a hard road? Oh, yes, it is. Matthew 7, 14, friends. Narrow is the gate, and hard is the road that leads to life. If anybody told you anything different, I'm sorry, but that's the truth. Which is why we should not be surprised when we see nobody's believing in Jesus. What's wrong with them? Jesus told us, few find it. Meanwhile, the road to destruction is wide and broad and easy, and everyone finds it. It's a hard road, but it's the only way. And my friends, it leads to life. It leads 
to life. I love the, I, this is not a hot take here. I love the Pilgrim's Progress. There's so many moments you can take from John Bunyan's story, but the one that always sticks out to me is when he first leaves the city of destruction to march on the road as a, as a Christian. And everyone is shouting at him to come back. And it says he stopped up his ears and ran away shouting, life, life, eternal life. The only thing that could let him leave that place, the only thing that enabled him to say no to his family and his friends grabbing hold of him was the fact that there is eternal life waiting at the end of this hard and narrow road. And friends, that's why it's good news. This moment when Jesus was anointed prepared and sent out, changed all of eternity. And we're going to spend the next probably about a year together studying everything he did and said and his friends and his enemies and his words and his stories. He changed all of eternity through this life. And tonight we've learned those seven facts that provide a foundation for us. We've looked at his identity, that he was a man. He was the son of God. He was filled with the Spirit we looked at his adversaries. He was hated by hell. We looked at the fact that he was prophesied beforehand. All this was foretold. We looked at it, what his ministry was like, that he was a herald of good news, and he was a preacher of repentance. And all of this is to provide a foundation for the story that is about to unfold. We know who Jesus is. Everything he did was leading to his sacrifice for us on the cross. That's good news. Jesus died so you don't have to. Knowing what we know about Jesus, can we risk this glorious testimony for the sake of man's approval? Knowing that these doctrines and these facts about Jesus are not just bylines in the doctrinal statement. They're the very foundation of our very hope for eternal life. If Jesus was not a man and was not God, we have no gospel. If he was not filled with the Spirit, how can we trust him? If he was not hated by hell, why not? If he was not prophesied beforehand, he's an imposter. If he was not a herald of good news, then he's just some other teacher. And if he was not a preacher of repentance, then he was not righteous. All of those things must be true for the gospel to be true. So it doesn't matter what political marriage of convenience might be on the table. We must reject it if it requires us to neglect even the smallest truth of who Jesus Christ is. We are to stand on these things, to be insulted for these things, to be persecuted for these things, ostracized, fired for these things. We must be ready to die for these things. I hope you are. That day may never come. I don't, I mean, people speak very confidently and say that violent persecution is coming to the United States. I have no word from the Lord on that. I believe that God is merciful and that God, as he said in, about Corinth, has many people in this city. But have you at least mentally and spiritually prepared yourself for that day? Others may think of Jesus as a revolutionary. He's politically expedient. Or a guru. He's going to help me find my best way to live. Or a tyrant. He represents everything that is evil and wicked about our culture. Or a high example, a good man that we can all aspire to be more like. But we know better. We know that he was Jesus Christ, the Son of God and man. Stand on those truths, Christian. It will save your soul and never back down, no matter what may come.